supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. special bulletin from ABC Radio. Here is a special bulletin from Dallas, Texas. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas, Texas. This is ABC Radio. There were three loud reverberating explosions. Nobody moved. Everyone seemed stunned. A few seemed to look around, wondering who has the firecrackers. Then suddenly the Secret Service men sprang into action. The convertible bearing the president and Mrs. Kennedy sped away. And officers, both plainclothes and uniformed, seemed to spring from everywhere at once, guns drawn, ordering people to lie flat. There are two witnesses who were near the president's car at the time of the explosions who say that shots were fired from which upper window we do not know. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, is dead. The president is dead. Let us pray. Hello and welcome. Spooky South Coast. I am Tim Weisberg. <laughs> At least for tonight. Yep, yep, yep. I have a cold, as you can tell. <laughs> now this is Matt Costa. We're uh, starting Spooky South Coast, as we do every Saturday night at 10 whatever o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking JFK assassination. And I, I need you to open things up because i got to see my voice yeah, as much as I can. You do. You do. It's kind of a... Uh, it hasn't happened in a while. It's been but, years. Yeah, yeah. I think the last time this some, happened was the Heidi, vitamin C the Heidi Hall show. Oh, yeah. The infamous Heidi Hall show. Man, I don't know if I'm going to make it two hours. <laughs> That's what you said that night, too, and you made it. You, I barely made it, and I'm barely going to make it tonight, but I'm going right. to try and do the best I can. Right. So uh, is Spooky TV up and running? Spooky TV is up and running, recording, and hopefully there's no audio issues. Right. And, of course, you can also just listen to us be, on WBSM. I'm going to be popping in the chat room here and there. So if anybody does have any problems, they can type in all capital letters. <laughs> and get then, your attention. Uh, yeah. Don't <laughs> yell at me. Because that's how you do it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we are going to be talking about the JFK assassination. We'd like to take everybody's calls. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also tweet us at SpookySC. 
I now have a WBSM email address, too. Do you? Well, it's a lot of that. I know, huh? Tim at WBSM.com. <laughs> You're big-time stuff. I am, but, of course, during the show, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com or SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. And later on in the show, we'll be joined by Robert Morningstar. I'm not, I'm not even going to make it through the first 10 minutes. <laughs> Robert Morningstar, who is a researcher of JFK and assassination theory, as well as a UFO researcher as well. So he'll join us later on in the show in the second hour to talk about some of the more fringe theories. And uh, he's got some pretty big stuff that he wants to reveal. Yeah. And he's looking for a trusted news source right. to help reveal it. So we might be partnering up with him as well as WBSM News if the news department is on board nice. with releasing this information. Nice. So. Yeah. Now, I know there was a, it's been 50 years since the assassination, correct? Yeah. So it's. Yesterday. I mean, um, did they? Uh, did I? Did I read that they recently uh, like released some more information that they were some different interviews and things like that? There's been. I know there's there's a, a slew of books that have been released, but I mean that's just because it's the 50th anniversary. Right, and there's been new video, and that's what a lot of people oh, have really? been jumping on. Is the there's long been a theory that one of the. Secret Service agents yep. that was behind the car was actually the one that fired the fatal shot. Right, I heard that they uh, had the the rifle underneath his jacket, or right. he he was carrying some sort of rifle that nobody saw, or no, or whatever. So now there's <laughs> apparently new footage yeah, yeah. for that. Yeah, I also, I, I mean, I read a few articles today, uh, one of which being uh, was testimony that there was only three shots and there was no sh- no fourth shot fired by someone. And then um an interesting thing that I um I didn't know beforehand was that um uh Jackie Kennedy um chose to wear that dress, that blood stained dress mm-hmm. and uh all day. I I guess to I don't know to give a message to whoever um whoever did this, I suppose. But I, I always thought they that they kind of like rushed her to make to be like the witness and identify the body and not give her a chance to change. But she, I guess it was her, it was her choice, choice, her choice not to change. And another interesting and, thing that I found out too is it was her choice to ride with the president in the back of the hearse. Oh, really? Which drove the Secret Service crazy yeah. because they couldn't ride back there with her yeah. to protect her. Mm-hmm. So, and she she insisted on staying with the body all the way back to Washington. Really? Yeah. So. There were some other things with uh, Marilyn Monroe that I, I was reading also. I don't know. There was uh, some, I guess, uh, Jackie and Marilyn Monroe met the day before. Really? The assassination happened. Yeah. Like one of those stay away from my like husband a, type meetings? I think so. I think it was one of those type of meetings. Nice. And I also read that the, uh, not Marilyn and uh, the, the president, but the first lady, first and first lady, first the president, that guy, um, had relations on Air Force One the day before. Really? Which I don't know why that was a big deal, because they're married, so whatever. Because he was cheating on Marilyn Monroe with, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> with his own wife. Not that we should be making light of, no, of, of, of a very somber uh, anniversary, but we would like your calls, your thoughts, your memories. Uh, what did you think of JFK as a man, as a president? What are your thoughts on the assassination We've done numerous episodes on the assassination over the years, and it seems like most of our audience agrees that there was something going on. Matt, what are your thoughts? 
I definitely there was, think there was something going on. I don't know if it's at the level of um, the government level, but there's definitely a conspiracy. I definitely think there's more than one person involved. We actually have a, a news clip here that I'll play. Fifty years after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, 62% of Americans in this poll continue to believe his killing was not the act of one man, but part of a broader plot. And as many think the government's covered it up to keep people from knowing the truth. Still, half of those who suspect a plot also say it's only their hunch. And the numbers who see a conspiracy or cover-up are well down from their peak 20 or 30 years ago. Really? Yeah, so there you have it. I mean... That kind of shows that's that's pretty indicative of our audience as well. Yeah, seems to be the case. And uh, I talked about this on Phil Palaiologos' show when I was filling in last week, and I put the challenge out there for anybody to call in and defend the lone nut, lone gunman theory. And in three hours, I only got one call, and that person's only argument was that there was no proof of a conspiracy. Yeah. My counterpoint was there's no real proof that Oswald acted alone. That's true. Aside from the Warren Commission, which, as we know, is full of holes, no pun intended. And our guest, Robert Morningstar, will help us pick that apart later on. And there it goes. There's, it's pretty much gone at this point. <laughs> Just don't say his last name. <laughs> That's right. I started to lose it. But 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers if you would like to call in and share your thoughts. We also do want to let people know, before we get too heavy into the JFK talk, that on December 13th, Friday the 13th. Yes, Oddfest. We're going to be having Oddfest, right? Oddfest. At Knuckleheads in New Bedford. Yep, Knuckleheads New Bedford. Um, I think admission is you just bring an unwrapped toy, Mm -hmm. right? Going for toys for tots. I'm not sure exactly. What the time is? I think it's seven thirty. Seven thirty to whenever. Whenever, that's an open-ended party. Till whenever Sony so, kicks us out. Yep. And you know it's going to take a while for Sony to kick us that's out because we're a good crowd. We could stay so long that people would have to go out to the store, get another unwrapped gift, and come back. That's the that idea. The more toys, the better. Yep, exactly. And uh, and Sony's going to bring some of his oddities. Oh, that's awesome. From his side I've show always wanted to see his stuff. And uh, he's going to bring him down, and we'll have him. We're going to have the whole downstairs to ourselves. Nice. And we'll just have fun. Be like the first uh, anniversary uh, party. Right. Almost. <laughs> and it'll be that combined with last year's Oddfest, right. which was pretty cool. All right. I think we have a call on the line, so let's go to it. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Has Tim been possessed tonight? Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> that, that would at least be an easy, easy. Uh, at least I could get rid of the demon easier than I could this this. Oh, boy. Well, uh, my thoughts on the JFK assassination, uh, as, as you know, I'm a pretty big Sinatra fan, and, and the events that led to Kennedy's election, uh, Sinatra was heavily involved. In fact, there are theories out there that he had his friends uh, in the mafia, uh, specifically Sam Giancana and other cohorts, uh, rigged some elections in Ohio, heavily populated Catholic areas uh, where, where they would, uh, let's for better word, the lack of a better word, encourage people to go out and vote. Uh, now, all of this was done because Bobby Kennedy was set up to be the attorney general, and they thought with the Kennedys kind of on their side, but uh, still in the closet about being on their side, uh, they, they would uh, have more room to operate 
and and you know the uh, the hand from the White House wouldn't be so hard on organized crime. Well, that wasn't the case. Bobby Kennedy actually made a concerted effort to uh, wipe out the mafia or do the best he could to get rid of organized crime in the nation. Now, uh, after a few years of top leaders being arrested and put away for a number of years, I think the mafia got a little frustrated, and uh, I, I'm not sure where the connection with Oswald come in, comes in then, but uh, maybe they, they got a hold of him. I, I don't. That's where I get a little fuzzy, but certainly uh, Jack Ruby had his connections, uh, and, and I think that raised a lot of suspicions when, when Jack Ruby killed Oswald. That definitely told people that, that something more than meets the eye was going on. Uh, and I think I don't, the LBJ theories, they, they have their credence, too. But I, I want to know what you guys think about the mafia theories. Well, I think the missing Matt, I don't know what you were going to say there. Oh, I, I feel like the, the mafia theory, I feel like it's a little too public to be like a mafia thing. I, I think if they were going to take out Kennedy, he would be not found ever or something. They're going to make him <laughs> Jimmy know, Hoffa like a Jimmy Hoffa type of thing. Well, I think they the, find him in a cornfield somewhere. The bridge there, Taylor, between the mafia and Oswald, I would think would be the CIA. The CIA? Because at the time, the CIA was heavily entrenched in what was going on with the mafia, because the mafia were operating against Castro and Cuba. Uh-huh. So because they already had that built-in rivalry, I think the CIA was kind of siding with the mafia, hoping that you know maybe Giancana or one of his ilk would be the ones to take out Castro so that they wouldn't have to. Because the mafia lost a lot of revenue when basically all the Americans had to pull out of Havana. I mean, that was a lot of revenue for them that was lost. I would imagine, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Just one uh, theory. I don't. Yeah, there's there's no other venue though that they would have been able to to get at. Uh, I take them out in the cornfield. I, I mean, yeah, that's that's typical for for something. Uh, you know, mafia-related. Yeah, that's how they get... How, how are you going to get the president by himself? Yeah, I think that's what it would have exactly. to be. It would have to be public. It would have to yeah, be I guess so. somebody that could be the patsy, which, you know, Oswald claimed to be. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you very much, guys. I'll keep on listening. You have a spooky night. Thanks, you too. All right. He's like, yeah, I can't listen anymore, Tim's voice. <laughs> I'm just going to go. <laughs> that's the thing is, like, whenever anybody else, you know, here at the station has a sore throat, Yeah. like... They just call me, and I'll come in and fill in. Yeah. But who's going to fill in for me? I don't know. That's why I turn to you. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, I mean, out of all the theories that are out there, though, what what one do you most subscribe to? I mean, do you think it was do you think it was an inside job? Do you think it was within the government itself? Was LBJ involved in it? Was it CIA? You know, was it? I, I, I do. I think it's, uh, I feel like it is this um, somehow involved with the CIA. Because, I mean, there is some definite links between Oswald and the CIA. I mean, him going to Russia and everything. And I don't know. It just seems a little too convenient. I just keep going back to that. The fact that at that time, nobody with the type of knowledge that Oswald had from his time in the Marines would have been allowed to go to Russia, let alone go to Russia, stay there, have known contact with the KGB, marry Marina, who was... And tied into the KGB family, mm-hmm. come back to the United States. Like, really, like, okay, fine. Even if they let him go, they never would have let him come back, especially knowing that he'd been in contact with the KGB. Mm. So, uh, 
Are we saying that he is the lone gunman? Or he is he was acting as no, I don't as, think, as a sole shooter. I don't not think, not the not by himself. Like he was the only one shooting at the time. I think they were building a lone nut. Yeah. Whether or not that the assassination was a deviation yep. of whatever plan they had for him. You know, maybe he was just so sick of being the Patsy, being whatever they were building him to be, that he reacted in the only way he could. He took out the top guy. Right. You know, so maybe there's that possibility. But somebody had their hands on Oswald early on. Right, right. I mean, how would he, how would he know to go to that book depository? How did he know, like, was that a public knowledge that... Uh, well, he the, worked uh, there. The, He'd been working there for a while. But I'm saying, like, uh, that... The uh, the motorcade path was released before they public. They used to publish it in the newspaper. Uh, they would give the entire route minute by minute of where you would be able to get the best view. And after that, they stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah, I can see why. Yeah, it's, it was probably not such a good idea. <laughs> so he's like, "Where's the best view?" <laughs> well, it, it just so happened that he worked in the building. Right. He was able to get into the building with a rifle, wrapped up, claiming to be curtain rods. You know, there was. Way too much, not enough eyebrows were raised that yeah. day. It seems like everything went kind of a little too according to plan on his end. I think things worked out way too easily for yeah. him. And which is interesting because when we talk to Robert Morningstar later, I want to find out because he wrote extensively in the past about J.D. Tippett, which I don't know if you're familiar with J.D. Tippett. No, no. When Oswald ran from the Texas School Book Depository, he encountered on some of the back roads of Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett, yep. which there had already been an APB put out for somebody matching Oswald's description. Tippett tries to intercept Oswald. Oswald shoots him in the face and kills him. Really? And then he escapes and gets and runs to the theater, which is where he's captured by the police later. And he's captured. He's apprehended as a suspect in the murder of Tippett, not for JFK at the time. So, uh, um, Robert Morningstar has written extensively about the similarities between Kennedy and Tippett, and he feels like Tippett was killed as part of the eventual cover-up of this whole thing. So we'll find out more about that in the next hour, but it, it, uh, to me, I don't really see the similarities, but you know, we'll, have, uh, we'll have Robert describe it better. Right. There's so many, uh, so many different, I don't know, variables and things that came up to have it not be some sort of conspiracy or something going on that we don't know about. Definitely. I mean, the um, it just kind of uh, raised my attention. Um, the the three tramps. Right. One of which was... Who was it related to? Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, that's right. One of which was his father, who was a known... Um, well, not suspected of being a spy. Right. But definitely a future felon. He was a convicted felon later on. Uh, one of the other ones was St. Saint, Saint John Hunt's father, um, uh, oh, yeah, E. Howard Hunt. And we had St. John on a few years ago to tell us about his father's deathbed confessional about being involved. And they're called the three tramps. Yep. But they don't look anything like tramps. They're way too well-dressed to be hobos from the train yard. Right, right. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of them right now. A little, little bit impeccably dressed for hobos? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't really dress for it. I don't dress this nice. Right. Although, we, we, although, dress, we dress like whatever. hobos anyway. <laughs> exactly. 
But one of the more interesting aspects of that is you've got, you know, three guys who are suspected of being CIA assassins within a mile of the assassination. And it's something that people just gloss over. Yeah, they just brush it off. Anyway, so, yes. I'm going to keep pulling, you know, I'm going to keep potting down and coughing throughout the course okay. of the night. <laughs> I do what I got to do. <laughs> do what I have to to get by. But, I mean, if it was any other topic except this, I probably would have, you know, called in. Probably okay, would have. It's the anniversary. Right. So. It's the 50th anniversary. We have kind to Kind of a big here. deal. Hey, that camera works now. Nice. Hey. Feeling everybody. <laughs> Which is good because now everybody can't see me. <laughs> yeah. I was here trying, on the other camera. I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, fade to black. So. <laughs> you keep going back. <laughs> When we're talking about, you know, the, the idea of Oswald becoming this, I don't want to keep using the term patsy, but to keep being this figure that they're building towards something, then if you follow his path when he comes back from Russia, he's not exactly the most stable individual. He wasn't right. really stable before. He was getting Pravda, the communist newspaper, delivered to him on the Marine base. Right. Red flag. You know, like, and that goes, but but was all that kind of a setup? Was it, or I mean, was he that crazy that he felt Uh, he could get away with getting it? You know, it plays both ways, and that's why it's such a perfect, you know, perfect patsy because you can't be sure. You know, he he tried to kill a judge, yep, he tried to kill a general. You know, these are, I mean, at least he's reportedly was in discussions for this, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are all uh, U.S. reports, right? From, I mean, are these from our intelligence? Are, I mean, it, is there a chance that these could be like made-up reports? I mean, no. Or, I mean, this is this is stuff that's been pretty much. I mean, there was yeah. there was record of him getting the communist newspaper. It was noted, right? But at that time, in the late 1950s, you should have been blacklisted if that was the case, right? And they kind of. Uh, they kind of let it, kind of let that happen. They kind of, is that what they, you're saying? Yeah, it was like they kind of didn't brushed it over. I guess. Yeah, they, they they let it slide. You could say. For what reason? Exactly. Dun dun dun. It's just, and and like I said, that's why it works out perfectly. Yeah, because there are so many questions. I think that's why everybody, uh, kind of, when they think of conspiracy theory, they kind of think of the JFK assassination as one of the top. I guess probably I'd say that probably the number one at least as far as America goes conspiracies. And if it was somehow, some way, just one crazy guy acting by himself, the fact that there are so many questions surrounding it just proves how much they botched this from the beginning. Right. That they could have had Oswald on their radar very early on. Right. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> I think I'm going to take a break. All right. When we come back on the other side. We'll talk more about this. We'll take your calls as well. Matt, give out the numbers. <laughs> it's uh, 508-996-0500 and toll free. Is it one eight seven seven? I should know this. Yep. You, can say, <laughs> you can say 877-996-1420. And we'll be back in just a moment. Yep. After this. Anybody here 
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. I'm Matt Costa, and with me is Tim Weisberg. That's weird. What's left of Tim Weisberg, anyway? <laughs> this, we're joined by the cigarette-smoking man. Hi, <laughs> boys. Sorry. <laughs> I think somebody out there is going to accuse me of doing a bad Sylvia Brown impression tonight. Oh, that's terrible. too soon. Uh, is it too soon? Mm. It is. I don't know. But, um, yeah, we are talking about the JFK assassination. That was sad, though. And that was Abraham, Martin, and John, which is by Dion. Not a lot of people realize that that song is performed by, like, Dion of Dion and the Belmonts. Dion DiMucci. The guy who sang The Wanderer and Run Around Sue. And then he had a religious conversion and started doing more conscientious music. Yep. And he recorded that song. And... I didn't know till just a few minutes ago when I told you it was yeah. actually written by the guy who wrote Snoopy versus the Red Baron for the Royal Guardsman, yep. which is an excellent song, dude. <laughs> it's an excellent song in terms of its camp value, but in terms yeah, of yeah. its lyrical content, it's no Abraham Martin and John. <laughs> no, no. Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. Those are the numbers to call in and chime in. You can also send us a tweet at SpookySC. Or at WBSM1420. Email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We are discussing the Kennedy assassination and some of the conspiracy theories. Coming up in the next hour, we'll be joined by Robert Morningstar, who will share with us some of his research. He was on uh, the big overnight show last night. The big uh, overnight show. You know, the yep, big one. Yep, yep. The one that we one. don't air on the station. Yep. And, uh, and so I was surprised when I reached out to him today and I was able to get a hold of him. Uh, yeah. He agreed to join us, so we're very honored for that. He's got some, he's got some information that you might not hear anywhere else, and we'll have that for you coming up in the next hour. When we're talking about the assassination, too, we have to note that JFK didn't want the bubble on the car, the plexiglass bubble. Oh, really? That was his choice. Oh, I didn't think it was invented then. No, Eisenhower was- used it. Yeah. Okay. So they did have it. Okay. But Kennedy refused to use it. He wanted to have the car open air so that he could wave and interact to the people. It was a nice day. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, he was he was kind of like a, a people's president. So. Right. So it was actually his choice not to as far as we know, right. as far as we're told the official version is, it was his choice. If that's the case, then that was a very fortuitous circumstance if there was a conspiracy in place. To assassinate him that day. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, what what if he chose to be in the bubble? Then uh, Oswald's, or I guess Oswald's plan would have been um, kind of, that would... I mean, could they have got him otherwise? Probably. Yeah. You know, is it is it a coincidence that it happened in Texas, mm-hmm. the home state of LBJ? A lot of people like to look at Johnson and, and think that he's involved because... In in hindsight, we can look back and say, well, you know... I mean, I mean was was that in the newspaper as well? What's that, that? That he was not going to use the bubble? I'm not sure about that. Because that would be kind of a, a key piece of information that... Um, People on the inside would have known, though. Right, right. People within Secret Service, FBI, CIA. Yeah. See? 
pretty easy to come up with a conspiracy well, that's theory. That's what happens. You know that. I right, come up right. with conspiracy theories about everything. I'm pretty sure my losing my voice was, you know, the, the government's way of silencing me from telling the truth to yep. me. Yep. So I don't mean it's to go all Moniz on you there for a minute. But, <laughs> but, and also, we should take a moment to express our um, our well wishes to Moniz's family. Oh, yeah, they, definitely. They had an incident happen. Those of you who uh, follow his family on Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. But I don't want to um, I don't want to speak out of school here on it. But you know they, they had some damage of their home, so we hope that uh, everything goes well for them. Better than for my voice, apparently. Baron von Bree Greenback. So. <laughs> <laughs> Danger mouse. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> we're cracking way too many jokes. Oh, for this, this, but this is serious. That's what we have to do to get through this. It's been 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, you know, the idea of Johnson being involved, people like to look back and say, well, you know, uh, they had a good relationship. They worked well together. But in actuality, they started off as enemies. Yes. They started off as rivals for the Democratic nomination. Yep. And back then, it was... You, you know, it was commonplace for your yeah. rival to become your running mate. And it was especially key for Kennedy because they didn't think that an uh, a Roman Catholic Eastern Northern guy could carry the South. And they needed those Southern Democrats. So hmm. they felt like they had to get him on the ticket and they had to get his support. So they were able to reach a compromise and get him on the ticket. Yep. Is it possible that Johnson didn't want to settle for being second banana? That's is it possible that Johnson was tied into the military-industrial complex, the the military-industrial complex that would benefit from war in Vietnam that Kennedy was trying to avoid? Yeah, it's possible. And I just go back to the the situation where and I, I've said this before: Jackie had to serve as witness to the swearing-in of LBJ. Wearing that dress covered in her husband's blood and brains, standing on Air Force One while LBJ was sworn in as president. Mm -hmm. Why? For what reason? Right. There were plenty of other people there that could serve as witness. Yeah, it didn't have to be the first lady. I mean, is that standard practice? I mean, I don't know if there was an SOP for this. uh, I mean, is the Secretary of State around? I mean, somebody could have done it. Well, just, I mean, anybody on the plane, any of the Secret Service agents, the pilot, you know, anybody. There was enough news media there. And I recently watched a special, and it's it's an older special, but I rewatched it, JFK, The Lost Tapes, where they play a lot of the audio from that day, the communications between, you know, Secret Service in Dallas and Secret Service in Washington. And they actually allowed for the media to be present when Air Force One arrived in Washington. Oh, yeah. And they allowed them to shoot the casket coming out of the plane, being loaded into the hearse. Mm-hmm. They allowed regular coverage of that, which I thought was wow. pretty, pretty um, very interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, they would allow that today. <coughs> I think they couldn't stop it today. I think back then it would have been, so? been easier to control. Yeah, yeah. But these days, you know, all it would take is one reporter putting right, it up on right. Twitter and it would go viral. True. I mean, do you think that's uh, kind of plays into the fact of like why we kind of hold this on kind of like a pedestal, or as far as far as John F. Kennedy is concerned, especially around here? I don't know. 
Well, yeah, became, I mean, I mean they, we were, he was beloved in New England. And just the Kennedy family can do right. no wrong, especially here on the South Coast. Right, exactly. So but, you, th- you think that... I mean, do you think it was partly because of that all that coverage? That we kind of got to, I mean, experience that? I mean... I think my theory is that... You know, it was almost like we were a part of the whole grieving process. I think part of it was the way that the Kennedy administration viewed their role in the presidency, Mm -hmm. where they wanted to be this new Camelot. They wanted to be almost like the royal family of America. Yep. And so, therefore, you know, they felt like they were on display for the American people. Yeah. So they didn't really hide a lot. Now, of course, we weren't alive then. No. So we should preface (laughs) preface this by saying that. But I think that that was such a, a turning point I think that's like the loss of America's innocence. Really. Yeah. Because before that, you have the happy-go-lucky 50s. Yep. More or less. And after that, you have the cynicism of the 60s. And that's the dividing line right there. And what you're seeing is you're seeing that old mentality of we trust the government. Yep. We trust what we're being told. We trust the media to be giving us an unbiased account. You know, we, it was, it was, that, it was uh, kind of like a, a wake-up call, like we're not living such a uh, – kind of like we were – America was kind of living a, a sheltered life in the 50s. Right. And, and then it was we kind were, of a slap in the face being like – And we were still viewing yeah. this event through that filter, whereas if the same circumstances happened post-JFK, RFK, MLK, Watergate, if it had happened later on – right we would have had a completely different view of it and a completely different outlook of it. And they would have had a completely different reaction. When you hear these tapes that they played on the special, they're talking about how there was no procedure to follow. There was no book written on this. Yeah. Because they had never, I mean, they had never had it happen in such a fashion. Right. So they were kind of making it up as they went along. And I think that in today's world, that wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have been allowed to make it up as they went along. Right, right. I'm running out of I'm running out of it here. I need Sorry. some calls. <laughs> I need some phone calls here. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. It's my own fault. It is. You never should have filled in for Phil. Filled in for oh, Phil. What was that? <laughs> That's what did it. It's been building up over a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I've been yeah, doing... It's going around, too. Well, I've been doing a lot of radio. I've been doing the... South Coast End Zone for the Standard Times, yep. and I talk a lot anyway, <laughs> and I've had this cough, and I just knew that sooner or later it was going to get to the point where it got strained. Yeah. So, it was a long time coming. This happens. Need some lemon drops. I wouldn't. Somebody, somebody suggested lemon drops in the chat room. Did they? They did. Like like those little candy-like I cough think so, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that would make a difference. I did the saltwater gargle. Yep. And uh, I had I had chai and I had regular black tea. And I'll get something else during the news break. Mm. Honey is supposed to be good. I don't know if there's any honey around here. I don't know. Bee throw up. <laughs> so when you put it that, that way, there's that. When you put it that way, it's it's bound to be a cure. But hey, you know, I lost my voice. Right. I wouldn't take back any of the conversations that I've had leading up to this. No. So there you go. 
And by the next time we come on the air next Saturday, or next Saturday morning for me, yep. I should be fine. You'll be fine. Right as rain tomorrow morning. I don't know about that, but I don't have anything coming up where I have to do a lot of talking. <laughs> yep. I just right get after the, the show, you're just going to com- be a complete mime. Right. Me. Well, that's good because usually you and I nice. talk. We're here for a couple hours talking after the show. Yep. And I don't really need to talk with you. You know, I can kind of just like gesture and you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like I can just do one of these like... <laughs> He's like not even looking at me, you know, like, yeah. like yeah, yeah, exactly. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. We'll take another break. When we come back, we'll take more of your calls if you want to call in. I'm surprised nobody's sharing. We did three hours of this a couple weeks ago when the phone lines were lit up the yep. entire time. Maybe well, those people went to bed early. Maybe. We'll be back in a moment here on Spooky South Coast. Boom. Hello. Hey, man. Hello? You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. Oh, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Right. I forgot what I was doing. I'm Matt Costa. With us is Tim Weisberg, and we're talking JFK assassination on the 50th anniversary. And we do have a phone call on the line if you'd like to call in. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. We'll be joined in the next hour by Robert Morningstar, a researcher into the JFK assassination. I hit the wrong line. That's on me. Of course, I hit the lock button, too. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Hey, Tim. Very well. Um, so I want to take a different angle on this JFK thing. Okay. So the way I see it, you have a succession of authors from about 1964 right up to today who, who can't be trusted um, to tell the story and who are building, who are interested in building a conspiracy, and they take different pieces of evidence, manipulate it, and build a conspiracy case. And then... It becomes sexy. It becomes popular. And uh, people don't do the background, but you do the background on some of these people like, you know, the Jim Garrison case and others, and they, they're, they're not on the level. Mark Lane, um, Oliver Stone is a great example. Well, Oliver Stone was just using the research of Jim Mars and others yeah. in, in putting together JF, the JFK film. Well, yeah, look at the JFK film. I mean, you know, it doesn't ac- accurately represent what happened in the Jim Garrison case. Well, I mean, I think any time you have a, a Hollywood version of it, you know, there's yeah. going to be some liberty taken. It was also a film, so you have to but keep does, that. Does Ol- would Oliver Stone admit that his film, is, his film takes liberties? I don't think so. He, think, he seemed to think in 91 especially, well, he backs away from it now, he seemed to think it was groundbreaking, and he pushed for the declassification of apparently this magic body of records that the government was sitting on, and there were hundreds of thousands of documents release so the answer to that then when he didn't find the smoking gun was oh well there's they're sitting on other there's other documents right right and that's that's the argument that's still made today is but, that there's you yeah, know that's a misunderstanding of how government classifies documents and shows oliver stone doesn't know 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 about documentation and history i mean that's a whole field of history freedom of information requests and there's a whole group called the national security archives that look at these things and there's, there's no document that says hey Lucien Sarti of the Corsican Mafia killed JFK, and it's sitting somewhere in, in Washington. And the, these researchers know that. 
what they're saying is Tom Hartman and others are saying there's a whole body of documents that say, okay, contingency plans for an invasion of Cuba. And they're saying, hey, I want that released. And if it's not up for its 35-year renewal, they'll say, hey, they're holding on to the documents on the JFK assassination. So uh, all of these, all, all the pertinent or most direct JFK documents were released after the Stone movie, after that lobbying move. And, and guess what? It didn't change any of the theories for or against the conspiracy. You know, and I can relate it to something that we talk about here on Spooky South Coast a lot, and that would be the Lizzie Borton case, because there's uh, Lizzie's uh, inquest testimony is locked up in her lawyer's office in Springfield. Yeah. And they won't release it because attorney-client privilege extends after death. And yeah, so and the, the, Earl Warren, the Earl Warren Commission, I mean, they followed standard protocol that the, you know, they, all the testimony and everything was there, the, but the actual FBI investigation work and some of the transcripts or whatever, that falls under a 35-year rule or a 50-year rule, and they were just following, they didn't, and that, that was the, that's the case with any government document. So right now we have all the documents on the 50s and the 60s, and 30 years from now folks will have the documents on the government of today. So, but to paint that as a conspiracy is uh, is uh, is not the way to go, you know. Well, and but like you said, though, the conspiracy angle is is sexier. It's more interesting. Yeah, and I it's, mean the the Tibbet thing too. You can see Doc. There's a great website, the Texas History Portal, and the Tibbet killing was investigated by the Dallas police. He was a Dallas cop, obviously. And you can go on there and you can see handwritten statements. From on about the 23rd or 24th of November, after Tibbet was killed, of the witnesses. Now you have about 12 witnesses to the Tibbet murder, whose testimony is right there, and you can read it you now today. Go online this evening. But what happened is Mark Lane, a, a researcher, so-called, comes along in 1964 and finds somebody who wasn't interviewed by the police, who who was blocks away from the Tibbet killing, and says, "Oh yeah, McQuilla Clemens, and I saw it, and I saw it, and there was two guys there." So now every single conspiracy book since has Aquila Clemens front and center uh, with a totally bogus story. And the 12, test, the 12 who gave testimony to police who identified the shooter in a lineup on that two days after with fresh memories, fresh eyes, fresh testimony, they're not mentioned. You don't get those guys in Mark Lane's book. So the real conspiracy is Mark Lane, Jim Garrison, Oliver Stone are making it all up. Well, do you think that, though... Is it easier for people to believe in the idea of a, a grand conspiracy than to believe that it was just, you know, one crazy guy acting alone getting away with it? Yeah, it is. But another look at look at um, you know the Gerald poor Gerald Ford. I mean, I guess he wouldn't shouldn't say poor Gerald Ford. Lucky Gerald Ford. But in the space of two weeks, two people took a shot at him, and they missed him by uh, six inches. Right. But nobody says that Squeaky Fromm and Sarah Jane Moore were their name. Manson Manson family members. Nobody says there was a grand plot there to take out Gerald Ford, because Gerald Ford isn't as sexy as JFK. We'd all agree with that, right? Well, but you mean with that, you have the, uh, you know, the whole Manson angle, which I think kind of gives it some of that sexiness. As weird as it is to say sexy when we're talking about the Manson family, right. but at least and it Kennedy gives it that controversy. Matter, I'm sorry? And Kennedy, for that matter, as well. Right. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, if we... if Oswald got to trial, and even if he just, you know, was non-cooperative or whatever, but if if he was convicted, people would have an easier sense of acceptance for yeah. him acting alone. Yeah, I it's agree because with you we, there. we never I mean, got look that at, justice. They tried to pull it, pull it with the Boston bombing too, right? Alex Jones and these guys, and we're we're from this region. We were highly offended by that. 
So maybe we should be offended by, you know, Massachusetts senator is killed by, you know, what Jackie Kennedy called him, a, a, you know, a, a little communist, and she put a word in front of that. Uh, and he, that's what he was, a little leftist punk who took a pot shot. And just like the punks that, that murdered innocent people in Boston, you know. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. We are uh, up against the news break. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. And if anybody else would like to call during the rest of the show, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can tweet us at SpookySC. Email us SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. When we come back in the next hour, we'll be joined by Robert Morningstar, who will share with us some of his research and hopefully do a lot of the talking so that I don't have to. And uh, he'll share with us some of his surprising findings, uh, both in relation to the Zapruder film and in his research overall of the case. So stay tuned for all that coming up. And don't forget, mark your calendar, December 13th, Oddfest, Knuckleheads, New Bedford, Downstairs. The only thing you got to bring to get in, an unwrapped toy for Toys for Tots. We're going to have a paranormal party all night long. It's your chance to come and get hammered with the spooky crew and Jeff Belanger. We'll be back in a minute here on WBSM. Spooky South Coast. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Cosman. Hello and welcome back to the second hour of Spooky South Coast. I'm Matt Costa, and Tim Weisberg is here. I was going to try it, I, but I figured I, I think, should... I guess Tim Weisberg is here. Uh, I figured I'd see my voice because I'm going to have to read Mr. Morningstar's right, bio. Right. Matt Moni is, of course, not with us. No, he's not. Dealing with some family stuff. He is. Hopefully he'll be back with us next week. Hopefully. We are on next week. Uh, no. Well, the, I think there's a there's, we're gonna try a pre-recorded right because we're show. we're gonna be at a we have a meeting <laughs> a meeting um, a very special uh, event right right a member we, of the spooky we were, family having we a big, were, we big were booked, day we were booked for a private party we can say that we right. can get away with that yeah so that's how that goes well we are talking about the JFK assassination tonight. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined tonight by our guest, Robert Morningstar. And uh, you might have heard him last night on Coast to Coast. And he's done numerous interviews over the years uh, discussing the JFK assassination and some of his research in that. He's a civilian intelligence analyst and psychotherapist in New York City, a specialist in photo interpretation, analysis, and computer imaging. He graduated from Power Memorial Academy in New York City and was a New York State Region Scholar, receiving a degree in psychology from Fordham University. And he's also an expert in Chinese language, history, and martial arts. He's also studied the paranormal and UFOs for over 40 years and has published many research articles on the Internet exposing government cover-ups and deception in the JFK assassination. And his work is cited in major books on the assassination, including Paris Mons, The Assassination of America, and Conspiracy Science by Professor James Fetzer. He's written extensively to expose NASA's use of disinformation technology in suppressing evidence of extraterrestrial life and exposing the real nature and threat of the UFO phenomenon. He's also currently the associate editor of the UFO Digest. Please join us in welcoming to the show, Robert Morningstar. Hello, Robert. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much, and um, sympathies on your your throat. Thank you. When, appreciate when, your effort. Thank you very much. When, when my voice clears up, I'll re-record that intro. And, oh, that's okay. I think real life is, is more exciting than anything else. Absolutely. So... 
I've read your work on the internet for a number of years now, and uh, I've always been fascinated by the fact that you find new and different takes on the assassination. You seem to be able to find new angles that other people are just either overlooking or uh, maybe intentionally ignoring. Yes, uh, this is true. I was just writing about that. Uh, the information I'm going to give you tonight about the uh, smoke and vapor trails uh, on the grassy knoll, what we've all been looking for, everyone's been demanding the smoking gun photograph for years. You know, where's the proof? Well, folks, I have the proof, and I've sent it to WBSM. And what I'm referring to is work I've done over the last 20 years, although I've studied the assassination for 50 years and one day. Um, I can tell you 20 years ago I had an idea that we might be able to find uh, what is proper, uh, properly called, popularly called um, tracers. It's actually a condensation trail or a vapor trail, as I shorten the term. Uh, that's left in the atmosphere under certain conditions by hot bullets traversing humid atmosphere when the air pressure is right and the humidity is right and the angle of the sun is propitious. These will be registered on um, film. Unfortunately, I'm one of the few people I know who are familiar, except the real shooters, you know, real people who fire rifles. My experience goes back to childhood. Uh, and I'll briefly uh, describe that. When I was three years old, my grandfather took me out on his, uh, his land, and he, for the first time, he was going to show me the use of a rifle and its purpose. Uh, I did not know what it was, you know. He took me out and told me to stand in a position, and he moved about 10 feet away, and then he shot an animal. And what I saw as a baby, three years old, was I heard a loud sound and I saw a white stick come out of the rifle and strike the animal and kill it. And that's what I thought rifles did. I thought rifles made a loud sound and a white stick came out and, and killed the target. And for years, uh, until I grew up, of course, I saw a lot of rifle shooting and I didn't see that again, of course, because the conditions weren't correct or right. But uh, that said, later on, I, I was in Army ROTC at Fordham University and for a brief time, as a member of Army ROTC, I was on the Fordham Army, uh, Army ROTC rifle team. And during those uh, training sessions in which I engaged at that time, I noticed in the firing range, uh, which was at the, the bottom of uh, the basement of ben, ben Salem College at Fordham University, as my teammates were firing, I could see a straight line right out of the rifle to the target. Again, the white stick was coming out of the rifle and hitting the target. So this is something, it's a phenomenon with it, with which I was, you know, very, very familiar. And all of you are familiar with it, too. And I will direct you to the greatest uh, compilation of uh, these, this phenomenon, the condensation trails. And that you will find in World War II films of the Battle of the Philippine Sea popularly called the Marianas Turkey Shoot. The conditions were perfect that day for this, and you will see the sky crisscross by machine gun fire, aircraft, uh, and, and uh, Marine Air, Air, Air Force, uh, Navy. Everything was firing great guns that day, and it's all over the place. So this is not something that has to be proven. 
it is only something that has to be shown. And fortunately, God blessed me with special eyesight. Not only is my eyesight clear, but my eyesight is very quick. I can see things that happen in the blink of an eye. And um, while I was seeing um, the movie JFK in 1992, I saw a vapor trail. Uh, in the first showing of the film, it went by and I thought, did I just see lightning? And then I went home and, and uh, puzzled about it. And I said, I have to go back and see that film. And the second time I saw it, uh, I saw it clearly. Um, I actually had found it in a very small um, print of the Zapruder film that I was studying prior to seeing that movie. And I pointed it out to a friend and I said, you know, that, that little thing right there could be it. But it's so small and this, uh, this print is, is so uh, old and grainy that I really wouldn't argue it. I have to get better, better um, copies. Right. And the copies of the Zapruder film were one of the hardest things to get as late as 1992. My good fortune was that on November 21st, 1991, the CBS show Hard Copy showed one of the best copies of the Zapruder film that I had ever seen. And it was actually a videotape uh, transmission of David Lifton's copy of the Zapruder film, which was a, a film that was... Uh, taken from 8mm to 35mm by professional photographers that were working with, uh, with David Lifton. Uh, Lifton worked with Axel Wexler. He was involved in, in this uh, project as well. So uh, he's a renowned Hollywood uh, cinematographer. So the, the print was exquisite. And uh, as a result of studying that film, I was able to find not only the vapor trails, but more importantly, the cuts, the splices, the edits, the juxtapositions of frames from one position to the other, the deletion of frames that should have been in uh, sequence. Oh, wow. And so that's, that's the nature of my work. And I sent a copy to, to Tim of the best print that I have of frame Z295 of the Zapruder film which will prove conclusively that it was impossible for one man to have fired all the rifles that were used that day in Dealey Plaza. Right, and if you look at this photo, which, which we will get up uh, with your permission, of course. I thank you, of course. This is the most important photograph in the entire history of the JFK assassination. And I will explain to you in scientific terms why this exonerates Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin. You were stationed for the South... Go on. Uh, would you describe the picture for the audience? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm having a little bit of trouble. I saw it earlier on my home computer. Okay, well, let, let me describe it. It's, uh, it's a single frame from the sequence after President Kennedy has been shot in the throat uh, and in the back, by the way. The first shot was in the back between the shoulder blades, and it made the president exclaim, Oh, my God, I've been shot. And when the testimony of uh, Roy Kellerman and William Greer came up before the Warren Commission, they tried to uh, discredit this testimony by, imagine, they, Arlen Specter and those um, 
attorneys tried to discredit the Secret Servicemen who were in the car with President Kennedy, and they tried to tell them that what they heard did not happen. And this was typical of the way the attorneys, uh, the police, the FBI, and others intimidated or tried to confuse and bamboozle witnesses. Whichever worked, they used. And uh, so Kellerman and Greer are testifying before the Warren Commission report, uh, Warren Commission before the report, and they said that President Kennedy exclaimed, oh my God, I've been shot, and they they turned around and they saw the sequence uh, begin. He'd already been shot, and then the throat shot, which was a separate shot from the back shot, ensued. So the argument that Specter and others uh, made to them was, no, it's impossible for you to have heard President Kennedy say anything because the first shot was in the throat, and he couldn't have said anything after the throat shot. And they said, no, we heard him say that. And they said, no, it's impossible. He was shot in the throat. He said, they both said, no, we heard him say that. And then arrogantly, uh, Specter says to them, how can you be so sure? And uh, they, they both said, hmm. he said it with a Boston accent. And that ended that uh, discussion. Wow. Understand? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the president had been shot in the back and in the throat. He was struggling and gagging. Jackie was turning toward him. She actually put her arm around him uh, rather lovingly, something that's been deleted in, in, in many versions of the Spruder film. And uh, as Z-295, that frame, occurred... A bullet was fired from a very high office building uh, and farther away than the Texas School Book Depository, actually across the street. I can tell you the building. It's called the Criminal Courts Building. And this is the building that houses the Sheriff's Department. Now, this this, um, vapor trail, um, I've made it well known you know, privately and in the JFK assassination circles. I've sent it to certain news uh, companies. And over a period of time, certain companies have taken very this very seriously. And I want to commend Fox News and Bill Hemmer for having produced the best documentary to date on the actual circumstances of the JFK assassination. And in that documentary, which has been shown and is being shown on Fox News, I direct you to it, uh, hosted by Bill Hemmer, they took this information and put it into a computer. And they found, uh, and they did a wonderful computer rendering of the trajectory of the shot and where it came from. And it came from the county records building, which had a clear and open view of the car from every position. The problem with the scenario that they try to pawn on us about the Texas School Book Depository is that from the time that the car turned the corner onto Elm Street, the, the view of the target, the president, was obstructed by huge oak trees that um, were planted in front of the Texas School Book Depository and part of the Pergola Park area, the uh, Dealey Plaza area. And so those trees were obstructing the view of any shooter on the sixth floor until the car was well, well down the street. Yeah, I've seen that on, on some of the documentaries. It's definitely true. 
Oh, yes. You know, uh, I have a brilliant friend, a fellow JFK researcher who's worked with me for 20 years. His name is Roy Schaefer, and he did a very interesting thing. He rode the limousine that is rented. Uh, there's a Lincoln Continental that was, is rented as um, the presidential vehicle, so you can ride the route and ride the path. And Roy is a brilliant man, and he took a camera, and he put he took the camera and he shot the sixth floor window from the turn all the way down the street. And from his position as the victim. <laughs> The tree was protecting the victim until the car was way down the street. And so what the victim could see of the sixth floor is the same thing that the, the shooter could see of the victim for that period of time with the trees between the shooter and the target. So that's one thing that, uh, you know, works against that lone gunman theory. The other thing that works against the lone gunman theory is the Alkins photograph which shows Lee Harvey Oswald standing in the vestibule of the Texas School Book Depository. Many people have tried to debunk that uh, photograph or that uh, interpretation of the photograph by claiming that it was a man named Billy Lovelady who's in the picture. However, uh, that doesn't wash because Billy Lovelady was wearing a plaid shirt. And the person wearing the, uh, the, the shirt being worn by the person in standing in the vestibule is actually a solid colored shirt, but one more important item. The shirt is missing the top button. And when you see the arrest photo of Lee Harvey Oswald, he's wearing the shirt, same shirt, and the top button is missing. So for me, that confirms that Oswald was on the lower floors. He went out, took a look, went back into the lunchroom, and Marion Baker encountered him. That was the only the only person to rush the um, Texas School Book Depository was a motorcycle policeman who was pointed up there by someone. And he ran in and met the Harvey Oswald on the second floor, having a Coke, walking away from a Coke machine very casually, having had his cheese sandwich for lunch. He was identified by Roy Truly, the manager, as an employee. And uh, then Marion Baker continued uh, his search. However, on the on the other side of the street, or from the other side of the street, scores of people saw smoke rising from the grassy knoll, and scores, nearly 100 people, ran up there immediately to, um, to try to catch the killer, whom they were convinced had shot from the grassy knoll. Now, um, so the, let's get back to the vapor trails and V-295. This is a unique uh, item because the, the bullet came in high and at a steep angle. It caught the president on the right side of the head, a small section of his skull. It went in and out and then continued. And you can actually see the bend in the vapor trail in the photograph that I've shown you right. or sent to you. And it's delineated by arrows superimposed in the photograph to make it easy for people to see. Now, I would bolster this interpretation of that uh, photograph with this testimony from Secret Service agent Glenn Bennett before the Warren Commission, who stated that he was in the second car and looking at the president, and he saw the president hit in the back, and then he saw him struggling, and then he said he saw, I saw a bullet hit the president high, high 
on the right side of the head. Mm. And well, that is what you're seeing in that photograph. And have you ever released... Actually, his words were these. I saw a bullet hit the president right side high on the, on the, head, on the president's head. Have you, have you ever released this photo publicly in, on social media or anything? Oh, I've published it uh, for years. It's, okay. uh, it was on uh, jfkresearch.com for years until that um, website went down upon the death of Richard De La Rosa. Because we've a got very people. dedicated um, JFK research who in fact, researcher who in fact is the only person that I, I know who saw the uncut version of the Zapruder film and described exactly what witnesses said happened. The Zapruder film is an optical illusion. It's a consciously engineered mass hallucination. It makes you believe you're seeing things that did not happen. It makes you believe that you see the president's car come around the corner. It makes you believe that the car never stopped. It makes you believe that the car was going about 35 miles an hour when the car never moved faster than 11.5. And well, that's the Warren Commission uh, statement. We, we have a lot of people uh, in the chat room and, and online who want to see this photo. With your permission, can I tweet it out? This belongs to the American people. Okay. This, this, uh, but I would like to say that I would like to thank uh, Zachary Sklar, the screenwriter of the movie JFK, also the publisher of Jim Garrison's book, his original book on the trail of the assassins, and Oliver Stone, who gave me permission to use this Cray supercomputer-enhanced version of the Zapruder film to, um, to capture this frame and enhance it. I'm tweeting it out right now, so anybody that's listening, if you follow us on Twitter, at SpookySC, or if you follow at WBSM1420, you'll be able to see the photo that we're talking about right now. And, and really, when you have the access to the type of imaging that you have to be able to have a better view of the Zapruder film, one of the questions that I want to ask you is, I'm sure you've seen the recently released enhanced version of the Zapruder film. Oh, yes, I I remember that. You mean the one that was uh, released around 1997, 98, and uh, was from the National Archives, and they reshot every frame and uh, rebalanced the color. And how did that compare with what you were able to see in your recreation and imaging of it? Uh, Well, let me say something about that. Uh, that enhanced version of the film. What they did in that film is they polished it a little bit. This film has been altered so many times and so many revisions that there are scores of versions of this. And in that one, what they did is they put it in a computer and what they tried to do but didn't completely obliterate are the splice marks. The splice marks tell the tale. Now, to cover up the doctoring of the Zapruder film, a story was made up that the film was damaged, okay, specifically at the part where the presidential limousine goes behind the sign. And I'm going to explain to you the reasons why that particular scene was doctored. When the car really doesn't come around the corner, I'm see... Uh, many years ago, a man named William Cooper made a statement. If you want to find the killers, don't look at the victim. Okay? So when you see the Zapruder film the next time, don't look at the limousine. Look at the background. Look at the foreground. Look at the sides. Do not look at the limousine. And when you do that, 
you will see the splice marks going past you. Huh? Let me explain the illusion. And let me explain the reality before the illusion. The motorcade had a pilot car ahead of it. That pilot car had a motorcycle escort of four motorcycles ahead of it. They were supposed to clear the area, make sure everything was safe and ready for the president's arrival. They rode ahead of the entire motorcade throughout Dallas, but they are never shown in any film of the assassination. Every film of the assassination purports to show the president's limousine as the first car. But about a block ahead of the car was the pilot car with Captain Lawrence of the Dallas Police Department and uh, Secret Service agents uh, that were accompanying him. The three motorcycles came ahead, followed by the pilot car, followed by the president's limousine and his motorcycle escort. So as the Zapruder film opens, you first see these motorcycles coming. One goes down Houston Street, and the other one, the other three turn. As the third motorcycle goes uh, in front of you, and it's centered in the screen, the film is cut, and another motorcycle instantly appears, making you believe that it was the same motorcycle you were looking at. But in that moment, and your eye went from motorcycle to motorcycle. A trick has been played on your peripheral vision. The president's car appears instantly in the middle of Elm Street, riding down steadily in an unbroken uh, motion and straight through the assassination with no stops involved. Okay, let me tell you what's cut out of this Zapruder film. Witnesses who were watching on Elm Street said that when Greer turned the corner of Elm Street, he missed the right, the, le the correct left turn, and the reason is this. The turn at Elm Street from Houston to Elm is not a 90-degree turn. It's a 110-degree turn, much sharper than an ordinary turn. Right. And Greer, being unfamiliar with Dallas, came down that street, and his eye spotted a right-angle turn, which was the service road for the Texas School Book Depository. He mistook that for, the, for Elm Street. But as he passed the actual Elm Street over his left shoulder at 110 degrees, he quickly cut the wheel of the car. And the right wheel of the car hit the curb, rode up on the curb, fell off the curb, bounced down in the far right lane, necessitating him to get back into the middle lane. Okay, so that little accident, let's call it, is deleted from the Zapruder film. The next thing that is deleted from the Zapruder film is the actual slowing down of the vehicle to a near stop because Greer, being a well-trained Secret Service agent and a well-maligned, maligned, slandered, libeled Secret Service agent who's been charged with shooting the president, totally bogus, a total distraction to make you look away from the actual things that were going on, to seed confusion in our perceptions. Greer drew his gun, but he didn't fire. That's removed from the Zapruder film. But Greer actually slowed down and nearly stopped because he saw a throng of people standing on the, uh, the triple overpass railroad bridge and knowing that any, anyone could drop, drop a rock, drop a hand grenade, fire a pistol at the president, he instinctively hit the brake. That's removed from the Zapruder film. 
Then he crawled up, car crept up toward the sign. When the car got behind the sign, shots rang out. The first shot hit the president between the shoulder blades and a very bony area. One of the most massive uh, bones, the sections of the human body with the massive bones, the, the vertebra of the, uh, the spine, the thoracic vertebra, the rib cage, and so on. And then the car, that's when President Kennedy said, oh my God, I've been shot. He proceeded a few more feet and someone in front of the sign fired a pistol with a small caliber bullet into his throat. And at this point, Greer, having turned around, now started to go again. But then he looked back as the president was gagging and struggling and Jackie was attending him. The car rolled on, and at Z-295, the bullet whose vapor trail you see in the photograph that I've released passed him and went on to Connolly. The car rolled on another second, and at that point, at frame Z-313, his head explodes with, with a sabotage shell, an explosive bullet. A few, a, a millisecond, a half a second to a second later, a second shot from the grassy knoll rang out, and that bullet entered the already open wound and blasted out the back of his head. And that's the actual scenario, and that's the only explanation that makes sense of all the testimonies in Bethesda, in Parkland. And this is testimony. This is a scenario which I presented to Dr. Cyril Wecht in 1999. And I can't tell you how gratified I am to see Dr. Cyril Wecht today on the History Channel or, or most recently on Fox News with Geraldo Rivera stating precisely that sequence of the shots. I think people don't uh, people tend to forget too. Geraldo Rivera was the one that actually showed the Zapruder film to the public for the first mm-hmm. time, right? Yes, but Geraldo Rivera was duped into presenting to the public the version of events that the Warren Commission and their supporters wanted the public to believe. As I said, it is an altered document. I call it a Mickey Mouse document because literally. Now, I'm talking about the original Zapruder film. At the original Zapruder film. There are several versions of it. Um, but... The uh, Zapruder film that was shown from 1968 to 1996, when this computer, 97, when this computer-enhanced version that you referred to was released, uh, was a very, very different uh, document. And uh, the computerization of it has polished it a little bit, but it's still a bogus instrument. Now, I'll tell you why it had to be doctored. It had to be doctored because the Warren uh, Commission came to its conclusion before looking at the evidence. The magic bullet theory was concocted, and that was the only um, explanation that was going to come out of that um, commission. As a result, the intact Zapruder film, which showed what really happened, including the car bumping the curbs, wiggling down, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down again to a full stop, and then racing away, had to be altered to fit the magic bullet theory. So what I've described to you, let us say, one, the back shot, two, the pistol shot to the throat, 
three, the Z-295 shot that grazed his skull, actually gave him a really good knock on the head, but didn't, you know, explode like 313. Then there's the Z-313, and then the final shot um, of that sequence, a half a second to uh, apart. So you've got five shots from the back, high, from the back, medium, from the street level, horizontal, into the throat, and then those three shots that arrive between Z-295 and Z-313 and following. Now here's the proof. Here's the proof of conspiracy. That is a shot that you see in Z-295. That is the mortal wound that you see at frame Z-313. That's 18 frames. The FBI said the film was shot at 18 frames per second, even though Mr. Zapruder uh, contested that. But if you take that 18 frame per second rate, one second of time elapsed between Z-295 and Z-313. However, the bolt-action rifle purportedly used by Oswald required 2.5 seconds to uh, cock and reload. All right, so he, let's say, they tried to shorten the distance. He had a, he had a shell in, in the chamber. He fired. He had to reload. In reloading, there were four actions that he had to do, and I know these actions very well because I've done them myself on a Manlicker Carcano. Okay? The, the reloading action is this one. The bolt action has to be lifted up and pulled back. That's two actions. Then it has to be pushed forward and cocked down. Okay? That's four actions. It's impossible to do those actions in less than 2.5 seconds. And yet the second bullet that I'm referring to, the death, uh, mortal blow at Z313, ensues only one second after this bullet passes. You understand? Oh, yeah. People have been asking for science. I'm giving you science. And you're talking, uh, you're talking too about that shot being able to be pulled off by somebody who knows what they're doing. And from what we understand, Oswald was no expert marksman. Oswald was at the lowest level of qualification for uh, in the Marines. His, his qualification was sharpshooter, and then marksman and expert come above that. But sharpshooter sounds pretty high, but really is it's really the lowest uh, uh, lowest scale, the just passing in shooting. The tests that were um, conducted uh, were rigged. You know the tests that you see, for example. Uh, CNN is rehashing uh, the 1972, 73, 74 uh, CBS specials and re-editing it. They've done a good job. They put in some good things uh, like uh, real testimony, um, the testimonies of uh, Mark Lane, for example, on uh, who was involved, and Jim Garrison, even though they ridiculed Garrison. Garrison was on the mark. Uh, Clay Shaw would have gone straight to jail had the judge not blocked uh, the proof that he was Clay Bertrand. Clay Shaw had been arrested by the uh, New Orleans police. And when he was booked, they said to him, are there any other aliases that you have used? And he said Clay Bertrand. And then they wrote it down. When Garrison tried to introduce that document, the judge blocked him. And that's why Clay Shaw was not convicted. Clay Shaw has a very interesting background. Captain Clay Shaw was a U.S. Army <clears throat> infantry captain 
And his claim to fame in World War II was that he captured Werner von Braun. And he facilitated uh, von Braun's migration to the United States by taking him in, turning him over, uh, acting as an intermediary in the first uh, meetings, and then relaying the word upstairs that von Braun was willing to surrender himself, his scientists, and the cache of uh, documents, uh, blueprints, and plans for the, the v, V1, V2, and uh, other exotic weapons that the Germans were working on. So Clay Shaw wound up being um, the head of Permindex, a part of something called Commerciale, uh, Centro Commerciale Mondiale, the World Trade Center. That was the Italian name of the front company, per Permindex. And this company was a CIA front that facilitated operations in Europe and in the United States through the cover of commerce. So that's, that's uh, the story of Clay, of Clay Shaw and his involvement. He was intimate with David Ferry and um, he, he moved in the homosexual circles of, uh, of New Orleans, which was a very clandestine thing in those days. Uh, I've been speaking about this uh, subject recently, that today we've become more a, a, a liberal, advanced, progressive, uh, and homosexuality is not a stigma anymore in our society. But in those days it was, and this is why that was uh, controversial, and um, J. Edgar Hoover stayed in the closet until 10 years after his death. That's when it was revealed that he, too, was uh, homosexual with uh, Clyde Tolson, his number two at the FBI. Be that as it may, let's return to the assassination. I have interviewed the witnesses who were in Dealey Plaza. So I'd like to give you some of their names or and some of their uh, positions. There are two ladies in the Zapruder film wearing, wearing a white uh, raincoat and a white babushka, and she's called Babushka Lady. And then there's a lady in the red raincoat. And it's as the car passes the lady in the red raincoat that this shot was fired at Z295. So if you have the uh, movie JFK, which has the best uh, quality, uh, version of the Zapruder film, if you go to the part where the president is passing the lady in the red raincoat just before her red raincoat passes beyond his head, this is the range in the film where this is, uh, phenomenon is to be seen. I met Mr. William Newman, and now I'm going to tell you the most important testimony, the most important eyewitness to the JFK assassination because Mr. William Newman and his wife were the closest people to President Kennedy at the time he was killed, other than the people who were in the car. He was one lane of traffic away. He was on the curb with his child and his wife, looking directly at the president, directly in front of him. Mm -hmm. And I saw Mr. Newman on CBS News, along with his wife, the night it happened. And Mr. Newman said, as the car came down the street, when it came by the sign, he saw the president react and stand up in the car, and he thought the president was going along with a gag or something. Those are his words. 
I thought the president was going along with a gag or something. And he fell back in the seat. And the car proceeded down the street. He saw the president struggling to breathe, but he's putting his hands in his throat. His wife, Mrs. Newman, whose testimony is in this um, CNN uh, report that's being shown lately, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, she makes the gestures. If you pay close attention to what Mrs. Newman says and does in mimicking the president's actions, you will see that the actions that she enacts or reenacts are not seen in the Zapruder film. They've been taken out. And these actions were that he reached up from his abdomen to his throat and then his cheek. He put his hand to his cheek. And Jackie Kennedy stated that she heard these terrible sounds, meaning the, the gagging sounds of the throat shot. And she turned around and then she said that he put his hand up to his forehead as if saying, I, th I have a headache. And then she went to comfort him. And shortly thereafter, a few seconds thereafter, his, his head was, uh, was, was blown off. Quite, you know, there's no other word for it. You know, the man's head was blown off. Well, why don't we take our, our um, last break of the program? We, sure. we come back, we'll talk more with our guest, Robert Morningstar. And if anybody has any questions, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We'll be back in just a moment with more discussing the John F. Kennedy assassination with Robert Morningstar here on Spooky South Coast. It blew books off shelves from 20 feet away and scared the socks off some poor librarian. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. This looks extraordinarily bad. <laughs> I think I can do this one. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Coster. We are discussing the JFK assassination with our guest, Robert Morningstar. And if you have any questions for Robert, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We did just have a call coming in, but it dropped off. So hopefully they'll call back in and uh, and share their question. Uh, but before we let you go, Robert, I do want to ask you about your research uh, with the J.D. Tippett shooting because that's, oh, yeah. that's how I first came across your name uh, in the research. And, mm -hmm. and you call Tippett the Rosetta Stone of the entire assassination. Oh, no. Uh, that, was a, that was a term that was used uh, by Wesley Liebler, one of the Warren Commission. See, the Warren Commission attorneys were forced to go along with the big lie. But honest men even under duress, wished to tell the truth or leave a hint. And he made this very cryptic statement which said, J.D., the murder of Officer Tippett is the Rosetta Stone of the JFK assassination. And I came across that, and I, that says it in a nutshell. Now, here's the key to it. Officer Tippett was the getaway vehicle of the JFK assassination. And I call it that because... As I've described to you, the president was hit with five shots between the shoulder blades in the throat, grazing off the top of the head, and two bullets that went through the head, hit to the head, one going through the hole made by the other. Right? No one could have looked at the body and that brain, what was left of it, and said that one man did all that damage. Not even 
talking about the damage done to Governor Connolly, which I uh, can explain as well. Um, so they had to have a brain to present to the autopsies that could be argued to have been shot and killed by one bullet through the brain. Okay? This is where I broke the case. And I broke the case simply on this logic. A friend of mine said to me, Robert, how was Tippett killed? I said, I read in the New York Times that he was shot in the eye, that he was horribly disfigured, and because of that, no one was allowed to see the body, not even his wife and his family. There was no viewing of the body. It was very quickly buried the next day. Tippett was buried on Saturday. Now there's a legend that all three people were buried on Monday. Tippett was buried on Saturday, and films of the uh, funeral show Jack, uh, Jack Ruby was there. Jack Ruby was his buddy. Tippett had been involved with organized crime. I know this because the lady in the red raincoat told me that. Jean Hill, I interviewed her in 1994. I showed her a picture of Tippett. She scowled, and I will repeat her words. Yeah, that's the scurve. And we were shocked. My friend said, did she say he's hung? I said, no, he's garbage. She said, listen, there's nothing he wouldn't do. He was mean, and he, he did a lot of work with Ruby. Many of the people who were killed in the aftermath of JFK's assassination in those subsequent two years and more, I said to myself, all right, we have all these victims. What were they talking about? What got them killed? And in a large number of cases, the people who were killed were people who knew of the Jack Ruby Tippett connection or the Jack Ruby Oswald connection because they all knew each other. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> J.D. Tippett and Lee Harvey Oswald had breakfast in the same restaurant two days before the assassination. So there was common knowledge and this had to be controlled. The, the, the control apparatus, information control apparatus, started with pool reporting. The JFK assassination changed uh, journalism, photojournalism, news journalism. In the old days, reporters and co uh, news companies would vie with each other for the scoop and then break, to break the case, be the first one to, uh, to get the story. The pool reporting as it was conducted in uh, the Dallas Police Department, successfully filtered all the information, <clears throat> and information that was at variance with the lone gunman scenario and, or the magic bullet theory or the idea that only three bullets were shot, were uh, eliminated, screened, uh, debunked, and people were intimidated, including a, uh, the chief uh, deputy sheriff of Dallas, his name was Alan Sweat, and he's referred to in a CIA mem memo as a difficult person because he was walking around telling the people the truth. And what was the truth? What was his truth? His truth is he heard the shots. He was a block away. And he and Harry Weatherford, another Dallas uh, uh, sheriff's office uh, patrolman, policeman, ran together, and he said that he heard seven shots. So the chief... Deputy Sheriff of Dallas heard seven shots, an experienced shooter, an experienced marksman, you know, and a man who could count. And this had to be controlled. And it says in this memo, called the McCone-Rowley memo, that they had talked 
to um, Detective Sweat and told him, you've got to stop telling people this information and going out of the chain of command uh, for disseminating information. Now, let me come up to the the, the most important, most recent... Oh, see, we, we only have about two minutes left, so... Okay. The, everybody's asked for the smoking gun photograph as the proof. Scores of people saw the smoke rising from the grassy knoll. They saw a flash, and they saw uh, smoke. In the Knicks film, which was heavily controlled uh, for years and years and years, so heavily controlled that I did not get, not get a full-frame version of the film until two months ago. But with that film, I found the vapor trails coming exactly as people said, coming from the picket fence. So I was able to capture a couple of frames, and I was able to shoot close-ups of the trails, and I've posted them on UFO Digest uh, under a story that says, Did JFK deserve to die? I've been leaking information, and I use uh, different vehicles to do it. And uh, this story, uh, a book review of a, store, of a book called Probable Cause, which deals with the question, a very interesting question, unique book. I've never seen a book that argued the question, Did JFK deserve to die? He had broken every rule, every protocol in the book as far as diplomacy, going around the State Department, not, uh, not having any more confidence in the CIA, acting independently through back channels to communicate with Khrushchev, demanding a total revamping and revision of our policy, our geopolitical policy. Well, I got, because do you a, have a family member who's sorry, getting old? That's my computer firing off. That means we're running out of time. That's okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining for us. We're making history tonight, and I'm very proud of WBSM as being the first to release this photo and to the people of Boston and the people of Massachusetts. Thank I'm you. here because I care about your president, your senator, your congressman, your native son. He was like an older brother to me. And just as if someone killed your brother, you would never give up until you catch the culprits. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Thank you very much, Rob. Good night. You as well. Robert Morningstar was our guest, and uh, we'll definitely have him back on again in the future. That does it for this week's show. Until next week, from Matt Costa, from Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. And if you missed any portion of the show, we will have it up on podcast. And we will have the blog post up with all this information. Have a great night and a happy Thanksgiving, everybody.